This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am one of the hosts of the channel, Shatranjay Maw. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Michael Silvestri about his new book, Policing Bengali Terrorism in India and the World, Imperial Intelligence and Revolutionary Nationalism, 1905 to 1939, which was published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2019. Professor Silvestri is a professor of history at Clemson University and a specialist in modern British and Irish history. So welcome to the podcast today, Michael. Thank you, Shatranjay. It's it's a great pleasure to, to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for joining us today. So our first question is always biographical. So I'd like to ask you about your background. Where did you grow up? And how did you become a historian of the British Empire? Um, and related to that, how did that? How did your interest in the British Empire lead you to become interested in colonial India and South Asia? Okay, uh, I grew up in New Jersey, and I, I think in terms of my interest in British history, I think it was uh, initially uh, a love of British pop culture, uh, British literature that led me into uh, into history, and. When I was an undergraduate at Brown University, uh, one of my teachers was the late Perry Curtis, who was a historian of uh, modern Britain and Ireland, wrote uh, a wonderful book called Apes and Angels about the Irishman in Victorian caricature. And he was very interested in the subject of the colonial relationships of Ireland and situating Ireland within an imperial framework. Uh, after college, I studied in Ireland on a Rotary scholarship and I became interested in India in graduate school. Uh, I, th- I think I was becoming more interested in, in, in places beyond Britain itself. And my interest in colonial India and South Asia in particular uh, really grew out of a seminar I took in my second semester of graduate school on decolonization with Aisha Jalal. And it was her suggestion uh, for which she should not be held responsible, or rather uh, a chance suggestion that I should look at the career of Sir John Anderson, who was governor of Bengal in the 1930s, but had served as undersecretary of state in Dublin Castle during the Irish War of Independence following the First World War, and in part was appointed in Bengal because of his experience with, uh, quote unquote, uh, terrorism. That started me down the road of, of looking at uh, colonial Bengal, some of the relationships between Ireland and India within the British Empire, and some of the transnational features of empire. 
Thank you for sharing that. Um, so, I mean, sort of building on what you just um, said right now, um, I had a more general question about the field of British history. So how has the field changed over the years um, in your or in your view? And to what extent are historians of Britain willing and able to include colonies around the world, like in South and Southeast Asia, Africa and the Middle East, or even next door Ireland, uh, like in your work? Um, so how have historians of Britain sort of begun to change um, or have they begun to change the ways in which they're telling the histories of the British imperial metropole by talking about these colonies? Yes, the, the field has, has changed greatly over the years. I completed my dissertation in 1998, and my original intention was to write uh, a thesis looking at Ireland and India within a British uh, imperial framework. And this was something I could not make work for the dissertation, I think in part for uh, uh, the question of sources. Uh, this was just before the digital age, the British library catalog had only become digital a few years before. And I think I was not able to to identify uh, some of the sources that I would uh, later work with. But also, I think the historiography was not developed in that sense. Uh, I remember many, a number of scholars looking at, at, at with bemusement uh, or, or sometimes, uh, you know, hostility to the idea that one would look at Ireland and India within an imperial uh, framework. But I think there has been tremendous change in British history over the years. Uh, I, I think so much work uh, is incorporating uh, the study of the British Empire and, and also beyond. I think in, in a way British, uh, British historiography has moved into a, uh, I don't know if you would call it a post-post-imperial phase, where I think empire is, is uh, an important topic, but so are global connections that stretch beyond empire. I'm thinking of a, a recent book like Erica Rappaport's uh, A Thirst for Empire uh, about tea and, and Britain and the modern world, which is in a great part a story about the British Empire, but also a global story uh, about tea that goes goes beyond that. So I think there that is something that uh, scholars have been, many scholars have been developing in recent years. I hope that answers your question. Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, thank you. Um, I, I mean, I feel like the field of South Asian history is enriched uh, through British imperial history. And li likewise, like British history or Irish history are sort of um, enriched through the, you know, through interacting with, you know, other fields, whether it's South Asian history or the history of some other part of uh, the world. Right. And, I th and I think you know, if, I, if I could just add on to that answer, too. Yeah, I think I think some to an extent, and this is an absolutely good thing, the uh, the boundaries uh between British history and the, the history of the, the former colonial world have become uh, blurred in the sense. And, and uh, people, yeah, I think there's, so, well, maybe that's not a point to elaborate on, but, but I think that's true. I think, I think people are, well, let me put it this way. Yeah, I, think the, I think to a great extent, the boundaries between British history and the histories of the uh, former British empire and the colonial world have has become blurred in in recent years, and I think so much work speaks to to multiple audiences. Uh, a, a book like Derbagosha's Gentlemanly Terrorists, uh, about uh, which was uh, very inspirational to to me. It's it's I think a work fundamentally about uh, about British history, but also about South Asian history as well. 
Thank you. Um, actually, I had the pleasure to interview Professor Durba Ghosh too last month. I'm very happy that now, now I'm able to talk to you, which as it sort of complements um, her work. So I'd now like to ask you about your new book, uh, Policing Bengali Terrorism in India and the World. So how do you come to write this book and what do you see as its major arguments and contributions? Well, I would never define myself as a police historian or a historian of the police, but in various projects, I found the police and colonial policing in particular to be a very uh, useful lens through which to through a useful lens through which to view uh, uh, developments within the British Empire. So, the book is originally based on my dissertation, uh, which I completed in in 1998. Uh, though though only a small part of that dissertation remains in the book. And the book had a very uh, roundabout path to to completion. Uh, for several years uh, in the early part of my career, I was in an administrative position at Clemson University, where I, where I now teach. And I went back to something that I'd only pursued in a chapter of my dissertation, the relationships, connections between Ireland and India. And I started to look for uh, look more broadly at some of these uh, some of these issues, and uh, again, I think as the historiography had developed, as uh, 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 digital catalogs and databases had developed, I was able to write a book about Ireland and India within the British Empire, looking at imperial and anti-imperial relationships. So that became my first book, on, although that was not my the topic of my dissertation. And I returned this topic, returned to this topic uh, as my second book, and shifted my focus to the Bengali revolutionaries in particular, and the policing of revolutionaries. Uh, when I wrote my dissertation, Another way in which the historiography has shifted, uh, in when I was in graduate school, the focus uh, was doing work that was important work. It had to be done on the stories of the subaltern, of subordinated peoples within the British Empire. Uh, there was not, I think, so much scholarly interest in elite revolutionaries, even even comments by historians that you, know, you should not be privileging uh, the suffering or the lives of, of elites over those of, of the ordinary peoples who were subjected to, to empire. So if I had to write my dissertation again, I would have more about uh, the things I wrote about in the book, about the revolutionaries and the uh, uh, anti-terrorist policing efforts of the British. But that was something I was able to bring out in uh, more in the, in the book. And in terms of the the book's arguments and contributions, uh, I was again trying to speak to two uh, different audiences or two different historiographies. Uh, I was trying to use police intelligence uh, to help us better understand uh, not only the nature of colonial power in late colonial India, but also imperial anxieties, and also mm -hmm. to understand how. Uh, this played out in the wider world, in, in the British Empire and, and indeed uh, beyond, because intelligence officers from Bengal uh, and from many other parts of, of India and, and, and the empire also attempted to apply their expertise uh, elsewhere, uh, whether it was in North America or, or Ireland or 
or Palestine. Thank you. Um, yes, absolutely. I mean, I think your book, uh, the, the way it's structured, um, sort of help, sort of caters to like you know serving like you know both the audience, both audiences that you were discussing. So on the one hand, uh, the first half of your book, you talk about uh, the. the the or the origins of intelligence gathering and so and um and sort of the how the, the policing of bengali revolutionaries um within the province of bengal and then the second half of your book you sort of um sort of expand your gaze and you talk about how um yeah, about about the, the 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 transnational connections of the revolutionary movements i mean that's something that hopefully other scholars um can build on i think it's something that's i, th- I think very influential in my interests too about uh, Indian anti-colonial revolutionaries and Indian anti-colonial nationalism. Um, so before delving further into the book, um, I had a more an, another more general question, which had to do with the research process. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about your research for this book? What are the sources and archives that you used? Um, and what was it like to research for this book? Well, the I think the story of uh of the research of the book. Sorry, I think the story of the research for this book is is a story of trying uh, not to be overwhelmed and and uh, uh, somewhat brainwashed by uh, the scale of of the colonial archive. Uh, I think that was something that uh, really helped alert me to the fact that this was uh, a significant historical issue to explore, uh, which is the scale of the colonial archive about these Indian revolutionaries who arguably compared to many insurgents uh, in the uh, early 20th century achieved remarkably little, but were a consistent source of, of concern for British colonial authorities, particularly in Bengal. So I have not done research in the West Bengal State Archives since the 1990s uh, when I was doing my dissertation. But uh, that was a, a complicated process. I, I imagine other scholars like, like Derba Ghosh can speak more to the, the issues of using intelligence and confidential records in uh, the West Bengal State Archives today. But at the time when I was doing my research, the archives were still considered to be confidential. In other words, if, if, if archives were considered to be confidential in the colonial period, they were still considered confidential by the government of West Bengal. And you had to submit your, well, first of all, you could not, uh, you could not remove any notes from the archive. You were meant to uh, write your notes. There was no question of bringing a laptop in. Uh, you had to write your notes, leave them in the archives. And then when you'd accumulate a certain amount, uh, you had to submit them for approval to the government of West Bengal uh, and the West, the home department of the government of West Bengal and the intelligence branch of the Bengal police. Uh, and I did receive the advice that don't rely on this. You may get these notes back after your dissertation is completed. Uh, but fortunately, the the director of the intelligence branch uh, was also a historian engaged in a publication project uh, uh, about the the. Uh, uh, the story, he was a historian engaged in a publication project about the records on terrorism in Bengal, and he considered these to be of, of historical interest, not something that would threaten the security of the of the Indian state. So uh, a lot of important material from the West Bengal State Archives. More recently, in the, in the 21st century, I've focused on using the archives of Indian political intelligence 
which were just mm -hmm. released in the late 1990s, uh, Indian political intelligence being the, the small uh, office in uh, attached to both the attached to MI5 and uh, liaising with the India office that was responsible for the the collation, uh, the the uh, uh, an analysis of information from around the world about Indian revolutionaries uh, and anti-colonial activists. Um, a great deal of this archive, uh, as as Kate O'Malley, uh, in her work on IPI, has noted, uh, is about communist movements, that was certainly the, the predominant concern of the British, but there was a great deal about the Bengali revolutionaries as well, particularly about issues such as arms smuggling and activities abroad. And uh, there were also some smaller collections I used the, at Yale University, uh, the papers of Sir William Weissman, who's in charge of British intelligence operations in the United States during the First World War. And also uh, in the uh, Middle Eastern uh, Center collection at St. Anthony's College, the uh, Tegart papers, the, the papers of former Calcutta police commissioner Charles Tegart, who was sent to Palestine on a mission in the 1930s to reorganize uh, the Palestine police. Thank you. Um, th th that just speaks to how rich and how wide your research was, that you consulted so many different archives in so many different parts of the world uh, to write this book. Um, so, I mean, I guess uh, other historians, those of us who are trying to do these kinds of transnational projects, I guess we should sort of learn from you about how you should not get overwhelmed by them, but rather to sort of, you know, find a way to um, piece them all together. And it's really interesting to hear about how um, the conf confidential records from the colonial time sort of remained confidential even in the post-colonial uh, period. Sort of speaks maybe to the continuities um, across um, the end of colonialism, at least in the Indian uh, context. So that was really fascinating. Absolutely, and I think I I sometimes uh, you know bring these out to to show students because I still have the original notebooks, the original letter. Uh, from the the government of West Bengal, which is releasing my uh, my records uh, to me, and uh, you know the sense that uh, you know a good illustration, I think, just the nature of of it's a good illustration of, as you say, how these issues of confidentiality, uh, the release of of archives, which which we've seen in the case of of uh, Britain with the the migrated archives and the the um, Hanslope disclosure in the UK, uh, the, these things have continued on into uh, into the 21st century. Thank you. Um, so one of your major arguments is that modern British intelligence activities emerged within the imperial context and specifically amidst efforts to police the quote-unquote forgotten insurgency of revolutionary violence in colonial Bengal. So could you tell us about how British colonial authorities gathered in information in colonial India and about the emergence of this modern intelligence gathering in colonial Bengal? Sure. A great deal of the intelligence gathering uh, that took place in colonial India was what intelligence historians or intelligence practitioners today would, uh, would refer to as, as human intelligence. Uh, it was, yes, there were other uh, 
types of forensic evidence that were were used. But what the uh, Bengal Police Intelligence Branch uh, and the special branch of the Calcutta Police were ultimately dependent on was uh, their their agents, their their uh, ability to uh, uh, place agents within revolutionary organizations or otherwise get information from individuals that that that, that had uh, uh, information about the about the revolutionaries. Uh, so, in a sense, it was a very uh, it was a process that that centered on uh, informants of various kinds. And there were different uh, categories. There were approvers who testified in court. Uh, there were uh, informers who uh, who were those who were those providing information to the colonial police, but were not necessarily in revolutionary groups, and then agents, uh, those who were actually uh, on the inside to to varying degrees and could provide colonial authorities with information. And in in the stories that uh, British, uh, well, stories that were told, uh, contemporary stories about police intelligence in colonial India, uh, things that um, sometimes have a whiff of, of Rudyard Kipling about them. The, the success of British colonial authorities is often attributed to the success of British intelligence officers, uh, whereas in reality, uh, one thing that I certainly found in the book was the dependence uh, of, of intelli- British intelligence officers on their Indian subordinates. These were the, the, the key people who... Uh, who managed agents who uh, were the ones who were able to do the negotiations to to help persuade uh, or coerce uh, uh, individuals to give information on the the revolutionary groups. Uh, The British were there in a supervisory role, but, but in terms of negotiating these colonial relationships, the language abilities, uh, Indian uh, subordinate officers of the intelligence services were, were absolutely crucial. And the revolutionaries uh, recognized that. They they frequently targeted British officers uh, for assassination, but they, they also targeted uh, uh, even more and inflicted even more casualties upon Indian intelligence officers. The, the assassination of one highly regarded intelligence officer, Basanta Kumar Chatterjee, in 1916, uh, demoralized the, the intelligence branch and, and threatened to, to cripple their ability to uh, monitor uh, the, the revolutionary groups at a time when uh, they had expanded greatly. That's very intriguing. Um, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so, uh, like, sort of building on what you just said about, you know, the the rev- rev- revolutionary, uh, the, the members of the revolutionary uh, movement, or sort of as Durba Ghosh calls them, the gentlemanly terrorists. Um, so, what sort of relationship did they have with the colonial police amidst the revolutionary violence of the early twentieth century? Yes, that's that's a very good question, and. The the revolutionaries, uh, I think the well, I think it's fair to say that the revolutionaries were obsessed with the uh, colonial police intelligence officers, and colonial police intelligence officers were obsessed with the 
revolutionaries. Uh, it was it was in uh, kind of a constant and, and almost obsessive source of uh, of concern. And uh, uh, Tim Harper, in, in his I like the phrase that Tim Harper uses in his wonderful work on on underground Asia, uh, where he uh, something I, I where he wrote that uh, you know, they both were obsessed with making connections. You know, the revolutionaries were trying to to draw out what with what did the what did the British know about them? What were the uh, you know what were the possible networks of information that were flowing to them? And the British. Uh, we're trying to to map out sometimes in, in quite elaborate uh, and detailed fashion the relationships uh, among different revolutionaries, their their lives, uh, what they uh, where they where they live, the places they frequented. Uh, this is a uh, an almost obsessive sort of, of of concern. I think from the British point of view, a belief that. Uh, they exhibited something. I think it's very common in the colonial context that they exhibited a mastery uh, of, of of understanding about these revolutionaries. That they they knew them as uh, as well uh, uh, as did previous generations of colonial officers who were uh, who were uh, combating uh, dacoits or 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 tugs uh, in in the earlier part of the of the 19th century. And, and that was something I was trying to do in the first chapter of the book to kind of bring out some of these colonial connections. Because all these intelligence officers of the Bengal police, most of them didn't have any kind of formal intelligence training. Uh, they were trained as colonial police officers. They, they did routine duties at first. They uh, had the same, learned the same... Uh, they exhibited, they, they, they uh, displayed the same assumptions about things like colonial uh, criminality, uh, uh, colonial stereotypes about, about Bengalis, this weak and effeminate people. Uh, they had many, did, typically did many routine duties before they were drafted into the, into the intelligence branch. So there, uh, there was this tension as, as intelligence agencies began to develop, became... Uh, uh, more, more modern, more professional, uh, with very elaborate uh, organizational flowcharts and and responsibilities of different officers uh, and and structures, district structures extending throughout Bengal. They, they were rooted in in the practices of of colonialism. So uh, that might be more of an answer than you were you were looking for, but that's some of the things that went into it. That's really interesting. Um, thank you for sharing. As you were discussing, as you were mentioning about the sort of the continuities between, um, uh, d d you know, the the ways in in which the the Br the British had sort of dealt with dacoits in the probably the nineteenth century and how some of those practices were sort of uh, sort of transferred into the 20th century. I was also thinking of um, Joseph McQuaid's recent book about genealogy of oh, a genealogy of terrorism in which he talks about the origins of this term terrorism and how certain forms of violence were sort of um, deemed to be terrorist, terroristic. And, you know, I mean, it, it sort of, I think, um, connects very well with uh, what you were just saying and connects very well uh, with your book. Um, so thank you for sharing that.
Um, so something else you also discuss in the first half of your book of, is intelligence failures. Um, that, that was uh, evident most strikingly in the case of the Chittagong Armory Raid. Um, and you discuss the reasons for um, and responses to intelligence failure. So could you tell us a little more about this and how did Imperial Intelligence and Police respond uh, to their intelligence failures uh, in the 1930s? That's a very good, uh, that's a very good question. As I was mentioning before, uh, the, the intelligence services prided themselves on the, the voluminous detail, the, the intimate knowledge they were able to accumulate about the, the revolutionaries and, and, and felt they could understand and indeed to, to an extent predict their, their actions. But I think one of the weaknesses of intelligence was that in effect, it, was, it had a very, uh, a very narrow area of, of operations. The, the intelligence services were the intelligence branch of the Bengal police. They were to monitor the revolutionary groups. They were not so concerned with, uh, uh, with, with Congress party and, and mass nationalism. Uh, they were mm-hmm. not so concerned with other types of, uh, uh, of activities that were, were deemed to be criminal. I even came across, uh, uh documents in which, uh, intelligence branch, uh, officers were, were admonishing, uh, you know, those who like, well, you shouldn't be investigating this. This is, this, this doesn't have to do with revolutionaries. So, so that, uh, and, and in the Chittagong Armory Raid, uh, which was staged on, on Good Friday in, in April of, of 1930, a uh, self-conscious attempt by, by revolutionaries to, uh, in a sense, restage the, the Easter Rising uh, to uh, make an attack on uh, on. Imperial facilities in the the, the port town of, of, of Chittagong. Uh, to they derailed a train, uh, cut telegraph lines, took over uh, uh, police armories. Unfortunately, they did not realize that the weapons and ammunition were stored separately, which really blunted the the effect of the weaponry they were able to acquire. Uh, and this was something that was a huge embarrassment to the. Bengal police. Uh, there had been warnings that the revolutionaries were were trying some uh, going to be trying some sort of of larger action, but uh, the sorts of this is where the the colonial surveillance came up short. That uh, they were carrying out uh, surveillance of, of revolutionary groups in in Chittagong, but the again back to this inter- intimate relationship between the revolutionaries and the police. Uh, the, the watchers of the revolutionaries were well known to the revolutionaries. Uh, they were deliberately seemed to have been feeding them some misinformation, uh, trying to mm-hmm. divert them from following where uh, they might learn something about plans for the uprising, uh, even telling them that there were events planned for after the date of, of the, uh, the Chittagong Armory raid so that they would be focused on, on future dates. So uh, it, was, it was an embarrassing uh, intelligence uh, failure for uh, these police officers who who touted themselves uh, to be among the best intelligence officers in the British Empire, and the short answer is that uh, in the 1930s you see a considerable uh, 
militarization of policing in Bengal as a result, and indeed the drafting of military officers uh, who were known as military intelligence officers uh, from both British and Indian regiments who came to serve as uh, intelligence officers with the with the Indian police with the with the, the police in in Bengal and and the idea was that these were officers who were um, uh, they were to be on special intelligence duty they were not going to have the considerable uh, bureaucratic uh, paperwork requirements that were the 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 bane of of colonial officers everywhere. They were simply to focus on the uh, on the revolutionaries, and uh, they carried out their duties in conjunction with uh, British and Indian army regiments that were um, that were uh, stationed in eastern Bengal. Uh, one of these military intelligence officers was uh, Sir John Hunt who was later the organizer of the first successful Everest expedition. And he wrote uh, quite candidly in his, in his memoir uh, just about the brutal nature of, of intelligence searches that went on, that uh, of uh, villagers' homes and possessions being, being ransacked, uh, of, of uh, uh, corporal punishment and, and, and third-degree techniques being used. Uh, so it was, in a sense, uh, an intelligence, uh, a, a, an enhanced intelligence effort, but it was also tied in with, with militarization. Uh, it was also tied in with something that was present, but difficult to find uh, uh, source materials about, about coercion, uh, torture, uh, these sort of practices were uh, seem to have been used in, in the 1930s in Bengal as well. And at the same time, there was this, as, as they, uh, uh, with this increased military presence, with the feeling that the revolutionary movements uh, has been blunted for the time being, there is this whole campaign of rehabilitation that the, and reform that the, uh, the Bengal authorities uh, undertake, uh, very, very rooted in ideas about uh, British masculinity and colonial masculinity uh, mm -hmm. to try to encourage uh, 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 boys, young men in in in, uh, in in Eastern Bengal to uh, to 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 play sports, to embrace uh, the scouting movement, uh, things like that. And this is one of my favorite quotations: was a private secretary to Sir John Anderson, you know, uh, put it. The idea was quote to give the Bengali boy a healthier physique and a healthier outlook on life, to make him the kind of young man who would punch you on the nose instead of stabbing you in the back. Wow, okay. <laughs> well, indeed. That's really interesting. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, and, and, and it's interesting, that was one of the, the justification for the military intelligence officers was, uh, as one colonial official wrote, it's, it's not even that their military officers or have intelligence chaining you know they are British officers, and we are. They will command authority uh, in the in the districts. I suppose why they would, and British police officers wouldn't. But it was it was rooted in these very um, uh, very much in these colonial assumptions about uh, the British uh, British masculinity, the the, the British uh, man on the spot in the in an imperial setting, able to achieve these uh, results. 
This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Absolutely. I think, um, you know, uh, this topic, I think, is some is something that I think many historians of the British Empire and historians of South Asia have taken a lot of um, interest in. And there's, a lot, I think, a lot of um, people who've sort of looked at the lens through which masculinity was constructed, both in terms of the British masculinity and also the ways in which they sort of... It, portrayed like the Bengalis in particular or people in India and South Asia more generally. Um, so, so thank you so much for that. Um, so in the second half of your book, you turn your attention to the transnational networks of Indian anti-colonial nationalists and Bengali revolutionaries. So how did British imperial intelligence respond to these global dimensions of the Indian re- revolutionary movement in the early 20th century? Well, uh, it's... It's a it's a complex story. It, it brings in uh, much more than the it brings in much more than the than the Bengali revolutionaries themselves. And I, I found this to be a tough uh, a tough question in a way. I guess maybe trying to just distill so much um, mm-hmm. so much stuff down. But. The British imperial authorities use various strategies for the surveillance of revolutionaries overseas. Uh, certainly, consular authorities were a source of, of information. Uh, you see this in mm-hmm. uh, in, in uh, places like Shanghai and uh, and in Japan. Uh, something that that uh, Heather Street yeah. Salter has called attention to in her own work on Southeast Asia in World War One, and you see. Uh, as well, cooperation. There is a. This is, I think, one of the features that, that Daniel Bruckenhaus has brought out in his work: uh, cooperation between different imperial powers. I think something that we're, which more work needs to be done. Uh, cooperation between British and French authorities, uh, uh, British and German authorities in revolutionary surveillance. Uh, a lot of the techniques are very similar to those deployed in, in colonial India, the use of agents, uh, the uh, British intelligence seemed able to place, uh, have a highly placed agent uh, in, or, ha- or British intelligence seemed able to have an agent uh, highly placed uh, near, yeah, British intelligence seems to be able to place an agent uh, uh, who was quite uh, an intimate associate of, of M.N. Roy, uh, the Bengali revolutionary turned uh, turned uh, international communist leader, uh, uh, agents, informants, uh, the interception of mail, which uh, was used, of course, extensively in the colonial context, was was used in uh, uh, outside of of India as as well. Uh, and again, uh, Indian political intelligence was uh, a key clearinghouse of, of information. Uh, they, uh, one of the, the features of the IPI archive is that you do, you have intelligence reports coming in from, from Scotland Yard, from, from MI5, uh, from 
SIS from or MI6, uh, which operated outside the borders of the British Empire, as well as uh, information from from India itself. So there's quite a diversity of different different agencies uh, who are involved in this surveillance uh, uh, passport uh, controls as as well. Mm -hmm. So does that answer the question? I hope. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. Um, so, um, just sort of building on what you just said, um, so th there, there were, of course, many specific individuals who were connected with the transnational revolutionary movement emanating from Bengal. Like you just mentioned, uh, M.N. Roy, another figure was Rashbihari Bose. Um, and then, of course, there were some of the Euro-American supporters that you write about um, in, in your book, like Hugo Espinosa. So many of our listeners, or maybe most of our listeners are not familiar uh, with these individuals, or at least one of these individuals. So could you tell Tell us a little bit about some of these interesting figures um, and about their relationship with British imperial intelligence. Sure. And uh, I think M.N. Roy, uh, the Bengali revolutionary uh, turned uh, international communist leader, founder of the Indian Communist Party, and Rash Bihari Bose, another uh, Bengali revolutionary uh, who uh, was involved in the the bomb plot to assassinate Lord Harding, the, the viceroy, in, in 1912, and fled to Japan, was in, is in exile there, and becomes a, uh, uh, a dedicated Pan-Asianist and indeed a supporter of, of uh, the Japanese, the Japanese uh, empire uh, as well. Uh, Roy and, and Bose, I think, are... are well-known figure, I think, certainly to 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 South Asian historians. Uh, some of the figures are, as you say, truly obscure, uh, such as this man uh, named Hugo Espinosa. That was a name he went by most frequently. One of the less well-known figures who I had uh, uh, a, a very interesting time uh, researching, man who went by, for much of his career as a revolutionary, went by the name... Hugo Espinosa, though uh, he was born uh, Hugo Rothkies in in uh, what is now Latvia, uh, became a naturalized U.S. citizen, lived in Vienna as as a as a young man with his uh, with his mother, and at uh, some point uh, around the time of the First World War, became involved in in radical politics uh, with uh, uh, with. Uh, uh, communism, and was someone who seems to have become involved uh, through through an association with Rashbihari Bose uh, when he was in Japan, involved in efforts to smuggle arms to Bengali revolutionaries, and he was actually uh, arrested and detained without trial for for almost five years in Bengal. Uh, in the 1920s, uh, along with a number of other revolutionaries, and the the Bengal authorities faced the the issue of what do we do with this person? And 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 Espinoza had uh, converted to Islam uh, during his his time in prison. Uh, he became known as Abdul Rashid, and he wanted to go on a pilgrimage to uh, to Mecca. So, from the government of Bengal's perspective, this was a great solution. Uh, uh, the British. Authorities in, in London said this is not uh, a good plan. We do not want to send a, um, a, a dangerous revolutionary anywhere uh, near 
uh, near the, the 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 Middle East, where he's likely to stir up uh, problems among uh, among Indian pilgrims who are there. So he ends up being uh, deported uh, to the to the United States because uh, he was uh, was discovered a U.S. citizen and was able to return there and, and seems to have uh, lived out the rest of his life in in New York City. Uh, I was actually after I finished the book, but I corresponded with his, uh, with his granddaughter who now lives in, who lives in Turkey. That's where, uh, that's where his, uh, one of his sons emigrated and, uh, someone who clearly had this revolutionary past and, and Harvard great resentment against the British empire, but never, uh, but never spoke about it. What Hugo Espinosa achieved, uh, it's not clear, but I think he's a great example of the sort of, varied connections of these transnational revolutionaries. He was uh, interested in, in, um, in communism. Uh, he was associated with Bengal revolutionaries. He also was very deeply interested in questions of, of religion, that he wanted to travel to Tibet mm-hmm. as well, and then converted to, um, uh, to, uh, to Islam, as I mentioned. So this, uh, on some kind of political and spiritual uh, journey, which uh, British intelligence was documenting at various points. Again, because he had uh, connections to M. N. Roy, he had connections to Rosh Bahari Bose, uh, he had uh, uh, seemingly connections to these to these Bengali revolutionaries. And again, I think you kind of see the same sort of dynamic that you would see in Bengal itself. This, uh, I don't think Espinosa, from what I could tell, was so obsessed with uh, with uh, British. Uh, British intelligence officers, but they clearly regarded uh, someone who, someone who is certainly not a prominent uh, revolutionary leader. He's not M. N. Roy or or Subhas Chandra Bose. Uh, someone as a as a rather dangerous character and someone um, whom they had to uh, handle carefully when the question of releasing him from custody came up. Thank you. This is a very interesting cobweb of individuals who sort of were but traveled all over the world uh, and sort of spanned like this global network. Um, it's quite a fascinating and relatively obscured uh, chapter in um, of you know of imperial history or modern history and something that maybe m- many people sort of these people are just people maybe some of these figures as you mentioned like M. N. Roy and Rash Bihari Bose or maybe later like Subhash Chandra Bose are of course quite well known but others have sort of slipped through the cracks so they've sort of been forgotten so it's really fascinating about how you uh, where you came across this figure and sort of brought him out of obscurity um a figure like um hugo espinoza yeah, and, and i think i think that's what i think that's one of the really uh one of the really fascinating things about much of the recent uh many recent historical works on this period that's uh people looking at uh, transnational revolutionaries and transnational lives of of uh, really kind of uh, intra-imperial lives of, of different individuals and the the different worlds in which they move the wide variety of connections and associations which they uh, which they had a, a reminder that while the British were very uh, much much uh, felt that uh, you know, there was Bengali terrorism was something that, uh, in general, was something just for the province of Bengal to be uh, concerned about. Uh, it's it's 
connections and relationships uh, were, as you say, a, a, a cobweb. They were they were on a much wider uh, imperial canvas. Absolutely. Uh, thank you. Um, so something you just mentioned while discussing about Rashbihari Bose is actually the subject um, of my next question about the arms trade. Um, so another transnational aspect of the Bengali revolutionary movement was the global arms trade and arms smuggling across and beyond the British Empire, something you discuss in Chapter 6. Uh, could you tell us a little more about this n- uh, network of the arms trade? Sure. Uh, well, the... Imperial authorities were were uh, and and there was I mean there, the, the, well, the imperial authorities were very concerned about uh, one of their great fears was that there would be large scale uh, shipment of, of arms large scale importation of 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 arms into into colonial India and certainly there were uh, serious efforts to do that during the First World War uh, the the gutter. Party based on the west coast of the United States and the mm-hmm. German uh, imperial government during the First World War. And in general, the story of these larger scale uh, schemes is that they they either fail or they they turn out to be perhaps phantoms. You know, sometimes in in the intelligence uh, archive, it's hard to tell. Well, is this something that was really uh, reliable? Because again. Uh, they're they're so typically relying on the testimony of of agents that you know someone in Rangoon said it was reported that there was a large shipment of arms on its way to to uh, uh, Calcutta. Uh, you know, was this really happening, or was it just a a, a tale spun by an agent or a piece of uh, disinformation from from revolutionaries that that he was passing on to uh, to his uh, British. Uh, intelligence handlers. Uh, so, so these large-scale shipments, uh, as far as the Bengali revolutionaries were concerned, came to came to naught. But where they got most of their their arms was uh, in small-scale shipments, one or or two uh, weapons at a time, and much of the the arms traffic revolved around maritime workers. Uh, uh, sometimes European, there's reports of, of German, uh, Norwegian sailors, for example, being involved in, in, uh, in arms sales. Uh, 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 Chinese uh, uh, seamen as well. But one of the, the main sources was uh, Indian maritime workers, uh, Lashkars, uh, Lashkars, who were... Uh, who were involved in much of this arms trade, and I think for for them, whether you know whether they were for German sailors or uh, 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 Indian Lascars, they were. It was a very transactional uh, sort of, of relationship. You know, there was there was demand, there was there was profit to to be made. Though you still do have uh, some, you come across some references in the in the intelligence archives of of Lascars who display uh, political. Sympathies, and uh, I like the phrase that uh, the historian uh, Jonathan Hislop used that the the last cars were not were not cosmopolitan, but they were they were worldly. They were uh, I think they number of them were very aware of the sorts of um, I think of, of to an extent of the political ideologies and also of the 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 consistent demand for these types of, of weapons. And this was a great, uh, the, the, even though, again, it's small scale, this is a revolver here and a revolver there. Uh, 
uh, whether they're they're British or German or of Belgian make. This was a great source of concern for colonial authorities uh, in Bengal because with one revolver, you're not going to overthrow the uh, the British Raj, but you could uh, potentially assassinate a high colonial official. And this was uh, something that was so so it posed a very real threat to the British community, to the to the uh, Anglo-Indian community in in Bengal. And so it was this uh, effort to enlist uh, different port authorities, uh, uh, both again, both British and and of, of, of other nations, police uh, shipping companies as well to try to uh, to try to uh, alter this try to stop this arms trade. And one aspect of the, of the British response to it that, that I think is an interesting one that, that brings back this element of the colonial context for all of this uh, intelligence work in Cloak and Dagger is that uh, they, they begin to target 1930s arms brokers to try to uh, get at the uh, people who were serving as middlemen uh, in, in uh, Bengal for these arms transactions. And they passed a piece of of legislation that uh, was the uh, it was called the Smuggling of Arms Act, and essentially allowed the government of Bengal to extern uh, individuals uh, convicted of arms smuggling from the from the province, and it was modeled on what was known as the the Gunda Act that was passed in the nineteen twenties that was targeting uh, essentially uh, organized. Uh, uh, criminal networks in 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 the city of, of Calcutta again. It's subject of the, the Gunda, subject of of uh, somewhat obsessive colonial concern as well. So that was one of the strategies used. Thank you. Um, so in chapter seven, uh, which I think is the last chapter of your book, you discuss how the lessons and expertise of imperial intelligence in Bengal was deployed and adapted in other parts of the British Empire. So could you tell us a little more about this? Because um, this is really interesting. I think this is a major point of your book. Um, but also related to that, could you t- also tell us about some of the individuals um, involved like uh, that you discuss in this book? Someone like the Irish policeman, Charles Steggert, who you mentioned earlier, who spent a lo- long part of his career in colonial Bengal. Sure. And uh and I, I suppose look, one one thing I, I'm, I'm doing in the book is is by focusing Bengal. This is you know this is certainly not the whole the whole story. I mean I'm leaving out uh, you know, there. You could trace connections of revolutionaries from uh, and and police from you know from the Punjab, uh, for example, just as just as easily. But it's but it's an important thread because you do find these officers with uh, intelligence in the. In the Bengal police, the Calcutta police, uh, cropping up at different points in the in the empire, and and, and outside the the British Empire, as well. Certainly, you see this in North America, where uh, the man who becomes most involved in the surveillance of Ghadar revolutionaries uh, on the west coast of Canada, uh, William Hopkinson, uh, a Eurasian man who emphasizes his experience in the in the Calcutta police and his knowledge of revolutionary networks there he's he's very involved in the uh, he's really the person most involved with surveillance before the war and during the 
First World War in the United States, uh, you have a number of officers uh, with experience in the intelligence, surveillance, intelligence work against Bengali revolutionaries. Uh, Robert Nathan, who was an uh, Indian civil service officer who later went on to uh, work for MI6. Uh, Godfrey Denham, who was one of the uh, intelligence officers in Bengal, who also had experience with the government of India and the Department of Criminal Intelligence. They're uh, really taking a very active role in the analysis, uh, the, the questioning, the prosecution of, of revolutionaries. And someone else who played, uh, was an, someone else who was an important example of this was uh, the, the figure you mentioned, uh, Charles Tegart, who uh, is of particular interest to me uh, because he certainly represents the Irish tradition of imperial service, which... Mm-hmm as historians have recently noted, uh, continues uh, into the post-1922 era, past the establishment of the Irish Free State. Tegart was a, a Protestant Irishman, and, uh, uh, an Irish loyalist, and he cultivated this reputation as a flamboyant wild Irishman in the uh, service. Uh, he was uh, someone who, uh, like Godfrey Denham, uh, but even more so was was renowned for his uh, uh, his third degree interrogation techniques. Uh, he was considered to be a brutal interrogator. And in during the First World War, allegations were made of, 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 of torture against him by by some Indian revolutionaries. Tegart cultivated this flamboyant persona as a uh, as, as a as a wild Irishman and was was often was a subject of multiple. Uh, assassination attempts by the uh, Bengali uh, revolutionaries, uh, though he was uh, never killed or or even even wounded. Uh, and Tegart was attached to the Indian Political Intelligence Office in the early 1920s. Uh, he conducted a lot of analysis uh, uh, relating to M. N. Roy. Uh, he and Denham were both in Ireland in uh, in in the early 1920s during the War of Independence, uh, at a time when uh, the the Irish Republican forces in Ireland had really demoralized uh, the the Royal Irish Constabulary uh, and and uh, uh, significantly damaged its its intelligence capacity. Uh, Tegart and and Denham were sent uh, on a mission to try to. Uh, to try to reconstruct uh, Irish intelligence and or British or try to reconstruct British intelligence in Ireland. And uh, I think it's a good example of how some of the, you know, the, that these intelligence officers, I think, consider their, their uh, experience to be uh, widely applicable. But uh, I think this, the experience of Tegart and Denham in Ireland, I think, suggests some of the limits of this, that uh, British authorities wanted, they wanted, uh, you know, Ireland was in uh, uh, rebellion, Uh, there was an insurgency, Uh, they wanted uh, quick solutions. And uh, Tegart said, you know, this, this, this is uh, essentially what you need is plotting and patient police work that you really need to try to replicate 
the intelligence archive of the Bengal police. You've got to compile history sheets and have card indices. And, uh, you know, this is not going to be something that happens overnight. Indeed, he implied that this might take years. And that was a message that did not go over well with, uh, with uh, British authorities. And uh, the tenure of these Bengal policemen in Ireland was a, a short one. Uh, Tegart and David Petrie, uh, who was later the wartime director of MI5, a member of the Punjab police and uh, someone involved in uh, Indian intelligence uh, during and after the First World War, uh, headed the intelligence bureau of the governor of headed the intelligence bureau of the government of India. Tegart and Petri were involved in a, a mission to reorganize the Palestine police, and I think there's a parallel with with Sir John. Anderson Anderson uh, uh, came to Bengal to uh, with the brief to try to apply some of his experience uh, from Ireland. There, uh, these two policemen, the Scotsman and an Irishman, uh, sent to Palestine uh, during the during the Arab Revolt to try to uh, bolster the the police there in the. Uh, uh, with their experience from colonial India, from from different uh, contexts, from from the Punjab, from Southeast Asia, where Petri also served, uh, Tegart from Bengal. That's really fascinating uh, to hear about the circulation of this manpower and the circulation of these intelligence agents and these police officers across uh, British Empire. And it just sort of shows how important it is to study, you know, British imperialism in these different regions and sort of in terms of connection um, and in terms of sort of, you know, trying to sort of see the intersections between them rather than just seeing each British colony as sort of, you know, separate from um, the others. Oh, yeah, I I would... Oh, sorry. No, I just wanted to do uh, say, say one more thing about about um, about about Tegart uh, th- th- that, um, and I was talking about intelligence a moment ago, but uh, Tegart and and Petri, what they were recommending too, went went uh, beyond that. There was definitely a a, a it wasn't all about. Uh, uh, sleuthing and, and uh, creating good detectives. There was a punitive and a coercive element to their um, uh, to their recommendation. Too, uh, you know, they talked about things like collective punishments uh, for for uh, disloyal Arab villages, uh, something that had been deployed in in uh, Bengal. Uh, he. Thought that Tegart thought that you should get uh, graduates of uh, public school, uh, kind of elite prep school graduates uh, for the for the criminal intelligence department in Palestine. But also, he said you wanted uh, you know you need to have for different recruits for rural mounted police. What he what he wrote was what is required is the tough type of policeman who knows as much of the game as the other side. End quote. So uh, the Tegart, in a sense, became an, a, a name that was known for uh, associated with police uh, brutality in, in Palestine as well as in Begal. 
Thank you. Uh, so in the epilogue, you end the narrative of your book uh, by discussing um, the anti-colonial leader Subhash Chandra Bose's remarkable escape from Calcutta, evading imperial surveillance. Um, and you also discuss uh, briefly the imperial intelligence gathering during World War II. So could you just tell us, um, as a, in terms of as a closing remark about the book, could you tell us a little bit about this and about how this illustrates some of the themes of your book? Sure. In the in the epilogue to the book, I uh, I think to the Second World War, uh, it also points out the diffusion of this intelligence expertise throughout the British the British Empire. Uh, again, taking Charles uh, Tegart as an example, uh, he was considered to be. Uh, uh, responsible, he was. Uh, it, it was. It was. Tegart was considered for a position with the uh, the special operations executive, the SOE's uh, new office in India. Uh, but he was in poor health at the time, and that was rejected. So he becomes involved in the uh, intelligence bureau of of all things of the Ministry of Food in Britain itself. Uh, in other words, an organization that's that's developed to to counter uh, black. Marketeering, and th- this was his his counterterrorism background was thought to be useful, and he made this uh, what was called the Central Enforcement Intelligence Bureau into this little enclave of colonial policing. And uh, th- there are comments from metropolitan police officers saying that you know these these people get results, but they're a little bit cavalier about such things as. Uh, uh, investigation uh, and, and and prosecution and it's example of uh, of, of these imperial influences being not only being uh, uh, diffused throughout the empire but but also uh, uh, having an impact on on Britain itself that that's one thing I think historians have demonstrated very clearly is that Policing uh, and 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 the British Empire was not simply a model of uh, not the policing in the British Empire was not simply a question of models being exported, you know, whether they were English or, or mm-hmm. Irish, quote unquote, models of policing. But it's this, uh, uh, as Georgina Sinclair has observed, it was this cross fertilization, this back and mm-hmm. and forth, and and that's a good illustration of of that. Denim, uh, just very briefly, uh, is is. Uh, works for MI5 and and is a liaison officer in the United States and uh, is on a fact-finding mission in the in the British Caribbean during the during the Second World War. So this diffusion of imperial expertise or imperial intelligence expertise continues, uh, and and the case of of, of Subhas Chandra Bose and his escape from Calcutta is a very interesting one because I think it, again, it brings us back to this question of the uh, colonial roots of the, uh, of, of this uh, ostensibly modern uh, intelligence structure that is, has been set up in, in Bengal. Uh, one of the things I found interesting in, in looking at intelligence reports, just weekly summaries of intelligence is how much they, they looked back to the past, how much the, preceding uh, more than 30 years of the revolutionary tradition in Bengal had become a, uh, a, a touchstone for these intelligence officers. You know, they're, they're, they're uh, referencing things like the, like the Chittagong armory raid, 
things that the revolutionaries did in the 1920s and 1930s and concerned that uh, something similar will be attempted during the Second World War in what was uh, clearly a very different, uh, a very different uh, political uh, and, and, and social uh, context. And I think this was something that uh, for, for these intelligence officers in Bengal, again, this obsessive concern they had with the revolutionaries, I think they tended to uh, downplay the, the uh, importance of, of, of communism uh, as, as an ideology and the attraction of revolutionaries to communists. They, they tended to sort of, at times, regard this as just a sort of front operation that, you know, well, they, yeah, they're acting like they, they want to be, they're going to be, uh, they're interested in communism and they want to organize the peasantry, but they're, they're really going to do something like the Chittagong Armory Raid all, all over again, because look at the history of revolutionaries in Bengal. We have the archive. We know them. We understand them. We, we know them. We understand them. This is what they're going to uh, to do. And uh, I think that, that that brings in the case of, of Subhas Bose. And the, I think the, the, the intelligence that, that it was, it was a huge intelligence failure, huge embarrassment uh, for the, mm-hmm. for the Calcutta police uh, and the special branch that, that Bose was allowed to, to slip away as he did uh, uh uh, Sugata Bose uh, has a wonderful telling of that story in his in his book, and I think in part it was a not just the 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 uh, the, the cleverness and the planning of Bose and his associates, but also they. It was also I think a failure of I guess a fail. It's a failure I suppose of the of the in a sense the 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 imagination of these colonial intelligence officers. They they really could not imagine. Subhas Chandra Bose uh, going to Japan. They just thought of him. They had a very low opinion of Bose. They thought he was a a, a posturing and deceitful politician. Uh, why would uh, even Britain's enemies be be interested in this um, in this in this man? He's not going to be any use to to Hitler or to or to the Japanese imperial government. So. They had this persistently low opinion of Bose, and there was this theory. Um, a member of the Calcutta Special Branch uh, proposed it and, and, and argued quite uh, strongly for it that I he is that that he's that Bose. Okay, he's 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 gone away, absconded, as he as he put it, and he might still be trying to bring about a mass revolution. But what he probably is trying to do is that he's trying to be a um, uh, a, 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 a sadhu, a, a sannyasi, a, a mendicant holy man. And mm-hmm. you, you just have to look back. This is what the intelligence officer was writing during World War II. You just have to look back to Bankam uh, Chatterjee's Anandamath. And, and that's going to, this was a, a core text of the revolutionaries. Bose is, is clearly inspired by this. So they, this argument was that Bose was somewhere in, in hiding in India as uh, pretending to be a holy man, trying to somehow uh, act out this uh, the story of, of, of Anandamath. So it was, I think it was a very limiting vision that these intelligence officers had. I think not taking account of the, the, the geopolitical uh, realities or of what uh, a nationalist revolutionary uh, like Bose really had in mind at at this point. So it's, 
I suppose, a, a failure of the of the colonial imagination in 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 that, or the imperial failure of the imperial imagination in that respect. Absolutely, and I think it also contributes to the uh, sort of the image that Subhash Chandra Bose has in India even today, um, even post-independence and even to this day. He remains this very iconic figure, partly because he was able to evade um, the intelligence this way. And, some, and of course, there's an entire um, history of the mythology around uh, Subhash Bose and this, these rumors about his, you know, his whereabouts after World War II, though, of course, um, uh, the, the, the history historical evidence suggests that he died in the plane crash uh, in 1945. But, uh, but thank you for sharing um, all of that. Um, and thank you, Michael, for taking so much time from your busy schedule uh, to talk with me today. Um, so before we end, could you share with us what you are working on right now? Uh, yes, uh, yes, happily. As I said at the beginning of the interview, I don't define myself as a uh, police historian or a historian of the police. But I am working on a, uh, a book right now. A proposal is with a uh, publisher uh, for a book on the Irish policemen in the British Empire and beyond, looking at the role of, of, of Irish men, particularly veterans of the Royal Irish Constabulary, the police force of Ireland, uh, their role in imperial policing and how Ireland figured as uh, an important site for British thinking about imperial policing, everything from uh, from the models of policing that were deployed in the empire to the influence of the uh, largely uh, Protestant, Anglo-Irish and British officer corps of the uh, of the RIC to the, the rank and file of of Irish constabulary men, most of many of whom were uh, were Irish Catholics, uh, people who uh, emigrated uh, in, in the hundreds to, to Australia and joined the police there who were recruited as intermediaries uh, to typically to positions as police sergeants in British Caribbean colonies, British Southeast Asian colonies in the late 19th and early 20th centuries uh, to serving uh, as the, the men who would train, supervise uh, colonized peoples, Afro-Caribbeans, Africans, Asians, in, in colonial police forces. So I am, that's my, my main project at the, at the moment. And also, and, oh, and uh, one more thing about it too, is that Ireland become, became a, a training site uh, for uh, colonial police officers by the end of the 19th century. And one thing I was absolutely fascinated to, to discover, which I don't believe anyone else has written about, was that uh, not only British officers, not only white officers, were trained in Dublin, but also a number of, of black African officers, uh, Anglicized, uh, 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 Westernized uh, men from, from the police forces of Lagos and the Gold Coast came to Ireland in uh, the end of the 19th century uh, to be trained in the ways of the, of the Irish constabulary. So that's my, that's my main project. I'm also uh, interested in... Uh, uh, in representations of empire in in recent films about Ireland.
That sounds really fascinating, um, and I, I really look forward to reading uh, your work in the future. And I hope our listeners also f- follow your work in the future. Um, so, so thank you so much. Um, this was a, it was wonderful to talk to you um, today, Michael. So this was an interview with Professor Michael Silvestri about his book, uh, "Policing Bengali Terrorism: India." In India and the World, Imperial Intelligence and Revolutionary Nationalism, 1905 to 1939. So I hope you have a good day. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Saturday. Thank you very much.